Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Thanks for tuning in. So glad to have you here for another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. Our upcoming conversation with Kevin Keefe will be a terrific blend of local history and philanthropy. We will learn that Kevin's family were, in fact, pioneers dating back to their settlement in the North Country in the late 18th century. And we'll also learn how his affinity for the region merged into a career devoted to preserving and stewarding some of the area's most precious lands and territory. Interwoven into family heritage and professional pursuits is a passion for service and community. Before our chat with Kevin, we must take a few moments to thank our supporters of the podcast, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They're responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to www.wpbstv.org to see the latest from WPBS and www.nnycf.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. Now, to start our conversation with Kevin Keefe, let's go back to the year 1799. Kevin, what happened in that year? Well, the first ancestor of mine uh, left an area over around Saratoga and walked into the North Country to see if there was land suitable for farming. And after spending a brief time here, uh, walked back and uh, gathered up a wife and a, his first child and came up through Fort Stanwix and walked into the North Country. Uh, history books say that he and his brother put the first tree to an axe and what would become the town of Adams in 1800. So you did a little bit of research to find this out. Was it, were it family members that told you about this, or did you have to dig into the archives to confirm it? Actually, I had to dig a little. Uh, I knew more of my fa father's family uh, history because our grandmother lived with us for many years and, and would talk about it. But on my mother's side, they, they weren't as talkative. And, and uh, Daniel Fox, who was her third great-grandfather, uh, was the one that I discovered, but I actually discovered it in archives down in Adams. Very cool. Now let's not forget too, I think an important part of this story is that Mr. Fox lived to be 102, correct? He did. He Which did. for that time and era is just amazing. It was. He was known as a, a centenarian farmer. It was really unusual for someone uh, in those days uh, to live to that age. His obit said that at the age of 100 he was still putting shingles on the barn. Wow. And uh, so it, it, it was quite a span. He, he told stories, so they say, of the uh, Revolutionary War, and, and he actually had two uh, grandsons serve in the Civil War. So that was quite a span of history. That's an incredible story. Uh, you grew up in the village of Cape Vincent, and you described it previously as an idyllic community. Can you explain what the village was like during your youth? Well, it certainly seemed it to me, at least, growing up there in the in the late 50s and the early 60s. Uh, it was a tight-knit community. You pretty much knew everybody. Um, you and your friends went out and, and played, and your, your parents sort of sent you out the door without worrying about what was going to befall you as you were out, other than the normal hijinks, I guess, of ki kids out on the street. Um, but it just seemed to be uh, a very friendly, uh, nurturing atmosphere to grow up in. I, I, I suppose there were things going on that as kids we didn't know, but it, it didn't seem to be quite as contentious in the turmoil that maybe you think of today. And 
And you went to school there, right, in the village? I did. The, the school I first went to was K through 12 until it merged with Clayton and became Thousand Island Central. But I went all of my years at the, at the school right there at the end of Esseltine Street. Where did your interest in local history and the tourism industry, which we touch on later in this conversation, where did that come from? And did growing up in Cape Vincent factor into to those areas of interest? I think the history came from my dad and from his mother, my grandmother that I mentioned had come to live with us uh, toward the end of her life and she lived to be 93 years old. And they, they just always talked about their time growing up in, in Cape Vincent. So the roots go deep. Um, but my grandmother always referred to her friends right up until the time she died pretty much by their maiden names which had long ago faded away as far as most of of my generation would have remembered but I loved hearing those stories and they just stuck with me so I think that fostered my desire to sort of dig into history and people that came before particularly. Your father Henry is a career firefighter retired as a Fort Drum fire chief your mother, Audrey Dillon Beckkeefe, worked in many jobs, served in the community in a variety of ways during her 95 years of life. What did you learn most from your parents? Well, uh, that's, that's a tough one because it was so much. But I guess with respect to our conversation, I learned a great deal about what it was like to, to grow up in a small community and uh, to contribute to that community, participate in it, and, and give back. They were we would sit around the, the dinner table and you just would listen to your parents talk about their engagement and organizations and and their daily lives as far as what it was like to be raising a family in, in a small town. So I, I think I took away from that just a great comfort in the fact that, um, again, roots were deep. You, you were sort of very settled and in a community and how important it was for that community to have its members uh, participate and look after one another and care about one another and those were the kind of things that came fairly natural it seemed to my parents. You learned quite a bit from the older generation in your early jobs um, working on a truck farm and having a paper route as a youngster. You got to know an influential couple in those early years too, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Purcell. The story goes Mr. Purcell was an attorney and financial advisor to Nelson Rockefeller in New York City for close to 25 years. Very successful in the railroad industry and he made quite a fortune. Uh, doing some archive search, he had given to his alma mater, Cornell University, what's documented anyway, equal clo equaled close to $20 million. You had said Mr. and Mrs. Purcell bought Deerlick Farm in Cape Vincent in the 1950s and settled into the area and you actually got a chance to help on that farm. What did you learn from Mr. Purcell in your time being able to help on the farm? Yeah, well, my, my dad was a firefighter, and he worked 24-hour on, 24-hour off schedules. So he was always a hard worker. He had grown up learning from his grandfather how to be a gardener. Uh, and when Mrs. Purcell bought the farm in uh, the early 1950s, uh, she hired dad to come uh, as her gardener on the estate. And he worked for her for close to 30 years doing that and raised just incredible gardens. The, the Deerlick Farm was a, was a showcase on the grounds. And I went to work with Dad when I was about 11 years old, so in the early 60s. Um, got to know the Purcells in, in that respect from just 
mowing lawn and being around. They spent all their summers and holiday weekends uh, here at Deerlick and really picked up just from knowing them and respecting them uh, the great way that they approached philanthropy and, and giving back. They never had children, but uh, Mrs. Hazel Purcell took it upon herself to think that uh, both of them thought that education was so important. Mr. Purcell was chair of the board at Cornell. And so they took on the project of helping first their own family members, nephews and nieces, and then later family members and children of people that work for them with their education. And um, it was a lifelong pursuit, particularly of Mrs. Purcell, to help in that way. Um, and then in later years, in the, in the late 60s, it just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, they gave the library to the village of Cape Vincent, and that was a project that both of them uh, loved for um, the remainder of their lives was their support of the Cape Vincent Community Library. And you were a beneficiary of their generosity as well when you were a youngster, correct? I, I was, my dad having worked for them and then me working for them from the time I was 11. Uh, when it came time to, to go to college, uh, they were very financially supportive of my college education at St. Lawrence and then subsequently, I think a, a ple very pleasing to them when I decided to go to Cornell and get my master's. Was there any conversation with Mr. Purcell about that when it came time to pursue the master's? Did he offer guidance and say, Cornell's the place to be? Or no, no, there wasn't. We, we talked a little bit about undergrad and, and I selected St. Lawrence and I can remember them telling that both of them had done quite a bit of research and, and approved of the choice, even though I think he probably would have preferred that I'd <laughs> gone to Cornell. But I didn't tell them about my master's pursuit just because I, I didn't want to feel that by any way if I got in that, that I had done it by pulling strings oh, so sure. I can remember calling them after I'd been accepted and it was, it was sort of a nice surprise to them. So after you received your degrees, St. Lawrence, Cornell, you pursued your career in social services. What led you down that path? Needed a job after college, really. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it, it was not in my, uh, I, I, I went to Cornell for public administration, so in some ways it was my field. Um, but to come back to the community in uh, northern New York, Jefferson County, where I had always lived, and go into social services was a real eye-opener. Um, it, it showed me a side of, of life in Jefferson County that frankly I had not experienced growing up in Cape Vincent. Um, I worked in uh, foster care, I worked in child abuse and protection, both of those units, and uh, so I saw a, a side of society in, in Jefferson County that I'd never before um, been aware quite frankly, even existed. Mm -hmm. Did that exposure influence or change how you give back to your community in any way? I, I think it, it broadened my, um, sort of my knowledge of the great need there is in a community that might have been uh, different from what I would have seen had I not had the, those positions with, with the social services and, and pr the probation departments because I guess when I saw my parents giving back, it was to church and to uh, the fire department. Uh, they, they were both very active in the Masons and the Order of the Eastern Star, those types of things. But the experiences I saw uh, with working in social services probably 
gave me a view that leaned more toward the kinds of things that the United Way and and the agencies that they supported uh, were dealing with in the North Country that really wasn't a part of my upbringing in Cape Vincent. You transitioned to New York Casualty Insurance Company in Watertown for 17 years before entering the New York State Park System. How did that opportunity come to be? Uh, quite by surprise, actually. I, I was with New York Casualty for 17 years. The company uh, was eventually taken over and uh, subsumed into a larger company down in Pennsylvania. So there began a process of, of downsizing, uh, and I was uh, one of the last officers of the, of the company to be downsized. And as I was looking for other opportunities, frankly, I just uh, saw in a newspaper article that the position with State Parks had opened up and made some phone calls and was lucky enough in talking to Senator Jim Wright and Jim Leanna, who at the time was the chair of the Republican Party, that I'd be interested in the position, and they were incredibly helpful in sort of guiding me through that process, and the appointment came, so a bit by, by luck, I guess. And some connection, too, along yes. the way within your network. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the position as director of the Thousand Islands region of the State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. Long title. Very long <laughs> title. But you mentioned it's an appointed role. So you had the chance uh, in your 15 years in that position to serve under four different governors of the state. What was that experience like, knowing that you, to, in some respects, had to report to the top to ensure everything was being stewarded the right way? Well, it... It was great to, to receive the initial appointment from Governor Pataki, and then it was a bit nerve-wracking to live through changes of, of administration because it was an appointed position, and you knew that you served at the pleasure and displeasure of the governor and, and his commissioner, but um, I, I felt very fortunate that um, I was able to uh, trans, uh, transition between uh, administrations, uh, four of them, and three uh, commissioners. So it was uh, an incredibly, uh, for me, rewarding career. Your knowledge of area parks is certainly extensive. What park, this might be a tough question, but what park do you cherish the most of the territory that you were responsible for? Boy, that is a tough question because we had 24 state parks over four counties and they all are just in incredibly beautiful. They all have their own uh, personality. And uh, so I guess I, I would pick one that really most people wouldn't probably even consider a, a state park in the traditional sense as far as camping and swimming and those kind of things are concerned. Uh, I became enthralled with, with um, Rock Island Lighthouse, which is uh, in the channel of the St. Lawrence River, just uh, west of the Thousand Island Bridge, and it was a property that was owned by parks, but really was shuttered and unavailable to the to the public. And um, just prior to my coming, a, a grant had been submitted, but but not successful, uh, to rehabilitate the uh, the island and to get the lighthouse opened up to the public. And uh, so it was a project that I took on when we had an opportunity to reapply for that grant. And, and felt would be exciting and, and, um, and beneficial to the community. And we were successful and spent many years um, rehabilitating the facility. And it's a, 
it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful place. It, it is considered to be the most intact uh, lighthouse in public um, domain, open to the public, and actually the tower accessible to people to walk up. Uh, the only one in the in, in the St. Lawrence chain in, going into the Great Lakes. So it's it's a great property. So our North Country explorers out there that are listening need to go see Rock Island Lighthouse, it sounds like. They should take the opportunity, it's a, it's a great place. Is there another park too that you can think of, of, of the 24 that you really feel is kind of a hidden gem? Well, um, another one that's somewhat different uh, and, and speaks again to philanthropy was a, a property that we uh, were able to uh, receive into the state from um, Bob Whaley and, and his wife Gaitra. And uh, Mr. Whaley had decided that the property he owned in the town of Henderson, uh, when he was done with it and, and his wife no longer wanted to live there, um, should become a state property. And while it initially went to the Department of Environmental Conservation, um, it, it was deemed that state parks might be a better fit as far as opening it to the public. And so that became the, the newest state park in the time that I was there and is a magnificent property of, of three miles of undeveloped waterfront um, in Henderson. So again, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have swimming and it doesn't have camping, but it is a wonderful hiking park. And if people have never gone down and taken the walks along the trails on the cliffs that overlook the, the lake, it's, it's, they really should take that opportunity. You've chosen to give back to the community in, in myriad ways. What would you say has been the most enjoyable part or, or parts of your personal philanthropy and the things that you've given back to? Well, I guess it started more in volunteerism than it really did with giving of, of money, although I will say that I think I learned about giving from the earliest times, and you asked what I learned from my mom and dad. Um, it always was a part of, of the family discussion, um, particularly about giving uh, to our church. And I can remember from some of my earliest memories sitting in the pew and having either mom or dad ha hand me the family um, uh, envelope of, of giving and being able to put it in the collection plate when it passed. And it just made you feel like such a big boy to be able to participate in that way. And then from probably as early as they felt particularly my brother and I, and then my sister came along later, that we would be aware of what we were doing. We always had our own uh, envelope for giving, and uh, Dad's pocket change became available on Sunday morning to get your quarter and put it in the envelope, and, and then when the collection plate was passed, to be able to, to, uh, to put it in. So I think that was a blessing to learn giving at such an early age and just have it be part of what you learned that people did. I would have to assume or guess because I don't really know, but for people that don't learn it early, it, it must be a bigger challenge because it's, it's sort of nice to have grown up just always assuming that a portion of what you are blessed with giving in a financial sense is, is something that you should give away. And I think if you don't learn that early, it might be harder to all of a sudden part with something if, if it was never a part of, of, of your early giving. So 
in early giving, I think that was very substantial in, in, in molding my view of, of philanthropy. But also a big part of it was just giving of your time and to organizations. And the largest one for me was after coming back from college, uh, being asked to serve on the board of the United Way. And um, just because of the many uh, issues that all of the wonderful agencies that United Way supports, um, being able to learn about them as, as we studied as a board where money should go that is, is given through United Way and, and, um, and how agencies should be supported and what their mission was, um, w was a huge impact on me. You had the opportunity to serve at a municipal level as well um, at a very young age being a village trustee in Cape Vincent, which you, you had mentioned before but also having a four-year stint to serve on the city council in, in Watertown. What lessons did you take away from that experience, and did that in any way impact how you give or how you uh, participate in your community? Yeah, well, I was a government major at St. Lawrence and then went on to get my master's in public administration, so I'd always been interested in public service in, in that route. Uh, and my first job with the county w was, was certainly in a government aspect, but... When I decided to, um, when I first came back to get on the village board in, in Cape Vincent, it, it was an eye-opening experience on a very small scale just to see how small government operated and the kind of services that people expected from their government on a local level, which was, you know, are the street lights on and is the plowing done and mm -hmm. somebody comes to pick up the garbage and in the village water and sewer services work and people were pretty happy. Um, then when I moved to Watertown and, and ran for a seat on city council, it's just a lot of the same things, just on a, a bigger scale. Um, again, I think my time with the county more showed me the uh, societal needs that were particularly at that time, I think, getting met more by agencies than by government. Um, but I've seen that change over time where agencies still, of course, are critical and very involved, but there's also a much bigger uh, sense that uh, somehow government can help in, in more of those areas. I'm not sure it helps very efficiently. Uh, I certainly do not feel that it that is, a, is a, an efficient source of, of community support as nonprofit agencies are that really get in and, and do the work. So um, I'm not sure that taking tax dollars and thinking that government's going to be a response to a lot of those issues is anything that I've learned has been particularly beneficial over the years. What inspires you to give back? Well, inspires me. I, I, I'm not sure is exactly how I see it. In, as far as giving back is concerned, it's always been just ingrained in me that it is almost a, an obligation. And I don't mean to make that sound like that's a, a bad thing, uh, because it certainly hasn't been for me. I've just felt that I've, I've been blessed. Um, I had a wonderful family and a wonderful upbringing. Uh, an extended family with loving grandparents as well. I've, um, I've been fortunate enough to almost always have a job except for the brief downsizing period with the insurance company. 
And um, so it just feels to me that having the opportunity to uh, give a portion of what I've received has, has been a blessing. Can you share a local example of giving back that has either compelled you to give or volunteer or even in just a community example that really has left an impression on you where you might look at it and say, you know, that, that is really special and it's making a difference. Could be a recent example or could be something from earlier times. Well, I, I think what's important because of the, the examples I'm gonna give are probably on a, a, a rather grand scale for most of us to, to think about um, because it's important, I think, for people to give regardless of how much they feel that they're able to give. Um, so small amounts uh, by many people are just as important as large amounts by a few. Again, the United Way example is a lot of people giving, and many in, in small denominations, to make a big difference. But the two examples that really I look at with people that have achieved a great deal and have still felt that giving to their community was very important. One was, again, Bob and Hazel Purcell when they made the decision to give the library to the uh, village and town of Cape Vincent. Uh, Mrs. Purcell had approached the mayor, as the story goes, and, in 1967 and said, I'd like to do something for the community, particularly for the children of the community. Do you have a suggestion? And she thought maybe a community center of some sort. And they said, well, have you ever seen our library? And she was introduced to uh, the tiny little uh, two-room library that I remember going into as a kid with a teacher's desk that sat just inside the first door. And, and that's where you learn to be quiet. And then uh, the musty smell of the donated books, mostly, that were on those shelves. And she walked in, and she looked around and turned to the mayor and said, I've found my project. And the Cave Vincent Community Library today is just an incredible facility, and, and eventually my mother was a librarian there, so it's sort of a double-edged uh, wonder for me. And then uh, a couple that I was fortunate enough to get to know and, and respect greatly, um, Dick and Mary McSherry, um, did the same type of upgrade for um, the village and town of Alexandria Bay and Alexandria and the beautiful McSherry Library. So uh, always feeling that reading is important and, a, and an avenue for people to improve themselves. Uh, I thought that those two couples in, in somewhat modern times, not modern to a lot of people who would be listening because Cape Vincent Library is now 50 years old, but um, those were important uh, uh, avenues for me that I, I felt that that was just an, an incredible uh, example of local giving. How can philanthropy make a difference in promoting our community's history as well as efforts in tourism? Well, uh, promoting history, I, I think certainly philanthropy can be important in ensuring that we have an ongoing history because the community needs to be vibrant and healthy. Uh, in order to really um, survive and want people to live there and, and to do well and, and to feel it's important to be in, in that community. And, and certainly through the ages here, I was, I was on the board at the Jefferson County Historical Society. So it's, it's a place where um, history is preserved and people can feel connected to their, uh, to their community, whether they've 
have a long-standing relationship with it, like mine that goes back to 1799, or whether they came here from with Fort Drum or, or for business last year. Um, it's still important to know, that I think, the history of your community. Um, so on the historical part, I think that's where it fits. On, on the tourism part, um, you know, we're just blessed up here with, with God-given natural beauty uh, on the tourism part that I was uh, involved with for 15 years. But um, so it, it's just a natural promotion there. But I think when people come and see beyond the natural beauty, sort of a, a, a community that's, that's, uh, that's giving and considered and welcoming, and I think all of those things are supported by a, a healthy, a healthy uh, philanthropic community. So you've been retired now for more than three years? Just, yeah, just three years in September. Are there any other opportunities that you're thinking of where you'd like to volunteer in the future? Some people have free time when they retire. Others say, I'm more busy now than when I was working. But Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm busy enough. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I laughed when, a, when I was getting ready to retire, and a friend told me the secret of retirement for the first year is just say no to everything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, that's never been my, particularly my strong suit. But uh, I've been involved with the... Uh, Samaritan Keep Nursing Home and now Summit Village on the boards for, for many years and that gave me a stint on the Samaritan Medical Center board as well and that has been, I, I like to continue to learn about the community and, and, and being so intimately involved with the healthcare side of northern New York through those boards uh, has been a real eye-opener for me. I, I, I find that service on boards, and I think most people would, would say this, um, you, you take so much more from it than you give. It's just an incredible learning experience. To wrap up, I have one more question for you, and I just want you to complete this sentence for me. Philanthropy is important to the North Country because? Well, there are so many ways that it's important, but I, I guess for me, uh, I would say that the, the most important aspect of a uh, vibrant philanthropy in a community is that it really knits together um, the generations and, and I think it brings together so many different aspects of a community and the people that live in it in a bit of a cohesive pattern that it wouldn't have if it weren't there. The ability for a community to respond to need at so many different levels and, and impacting people. And, and the nonprofits don't, don't just um, respond to one particular segment of society. I mean, people of means can, can be in need of service and, and, and people of, of meager means perhaps never really re require services. But when you do, um, to have that, that net of, of, of help and support there that philanthropy provides, I think, for me, would be the, it's important. Well, Kevin, it's been a great pleasure to share this time for your story. We appreciate all your efforts to make our North Country communities a better place to live, professionally and personally, the way that you have, and, and we thank you for all that you've done. And that's all for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. 
Remember, every interview is easy to access and always free, whether it's online or on your mobile device. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. We also have a website. Listen anytime to other conversations, which also feature interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to www.nnycpodcast.com. Our sincere thanks to Kevin Keefe for joining us, and we look forward to having you come back next time for another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community.